0: God, we believe that you deserve to be praised, you deserve to be blessed uh, at all times. Whatever comes, Lord, whatever, from the rising of the sun to its setting, you are worthy of praise. But God, we come in here this morning knowing that our hearts need to be recalibrated, our hearts need to be rewired, our hearts need to be awakened and uh, retuned to the wonder of who you are. God, we grow numb, we, we fall asleep, we forget. And we are just praying this morning that you'd be merciful to us. Would you, by the power of your spirit and through your holy word, would you wake us up again to the wonder of who you are? Would you wake us up again to your glory? Lord, that our soul truly would bless your name, sing your praises, worship you at all times, in all places, in all circumstances. God, we are so frail. We are so weak. We are so needy. And so we ask you to meet us here in this place. Pour out your power into our lives. God, we wait upon you. We wait upon you trusting that none who wait for the Lord will be put to shame or that none who wait for you will be disappointed. Show us the reality of who you are. We long to see your face. Our souls are hungry and thirsty for you our God, the one true living God. We want to hear from you this morning. Give us a soft heart. Give us a humble heart. Lead us to worship your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray and worship. Amen. Uh, As you're taking your seat there, I just want to invite you to go ahead and uh, open your Bible. If you have your Bible, to go ahead and open it to Psalm 113. Uh, We've already heard... Psalm 113, read, uh, but we'll be spending our time, uh, most of our time there today. Psalm 113. <clears throat> uh, in 2010, 2010, uh, SeaWorld animal trainer Dawn Branchu was killed by one of the animals that she had been training and performing shows with for years. Uh, a six-ton orca named Tilikum uh, had seemingly formed a bond with Dawn. Uh, but on this day, the orca's instinct took over, and Tilikum, according to eyewitnesses, uh, seemingly on purpose, dragged Dawn down quickly and swiftly to her death. Uh, when we take an animal like Tilikum, like a like an orca whale, a killer whale, and try to try to bring them close to ourselves, what we call that is domestication, right? Domestication is when we take something that's wild, something that is. Uh, that that needs no help from human beings to survive, and we try to bring that thing close. We try to bring it under our control. We try to bring it into a relationship with ourselves. That is what it means to to domesticate something. Uh, In the aftermath, when you read the report of what happened to Dawn, this this woman, you can sense the power and the might of Tilikum. I just want to read a little bit uh, to you from the report that, that came out afterwards. It says, the whale's Jerking motions resulted in Branshaw's jaw being fractured, her ear, knee, and arm being dislocated, her vertebrae and ribs being snapped. The coroner also determined that Branshaw's spinal cord had been severed in the attack and her scalp was completely removed from her head. In an instant, this animal that she thought she had trained, this animal that she thought she had control over, quickly and swiftly demonstrated that it actually had power over her. It actually had control over her. See, you might be able to capture an animal like a killer whale or or a lion or a bear or a tiger or something like this, but you certainly cannot domesticate it. You can't be that close to something that powerful and still be safe. Uh, In his book, None Greater, Matthew Barrett writes this. He says, the last two centuries have demonstrated that the modern person is quick to substitute a God who is like us, a God we can domesticate. For the high view of God. I will not be interested in wasting your time with a God who is tame and domesticated, a God whose divinity is humanized. That may be the God of popular culture, but it is not the God of the Bible. If we can't domesticate a six ton whale or or a lion or a bear, what makes us think that we can domesticate God? What makes us think that we can bring God down to our level? What makes us think? that God ought to listen to to our perspective, that that He ought to figure out what the morals of the universe are from, from what we think is right and wrong. What makes us think that we can put God in a cage where He's tamed, He listens to us, and He does our bidding at our pleasure? Some of us have believed in this domesticated God who has no right to tell us what to do, who has no right to impose His will upon us, And whose very job, it seems, is to make us happy rather than to be worshipped in awe and in reverence. We want a God who will get with the times. We want a God who will progress with us as society seems to be progressing. Beyond making us feel generally affirmed and encouraged, the God most of us want is a God who will just stay out of our business In an attempt to have a safe God that we can control, we try to domesticate God. But if God cannot be domesticated, uh, we might be tempted to think, well, you know, if God is so great and He's so big and He's so powerful, does that mean that I have to keep my distance from Him? Does that mean that all the talk about God's love and compassion and care for me is is just canceled out? Well, Matthew Barrett answers our objection, saying, only a Creator not to be confused with the creature, is capable of stooping down to redeem those who have marred His image. See, our inability to domesticate God is actually our only hope. That God must have dominion over me if He will have dominion over my enemies. God must rule over my life if He will rule over my trouble. God must have the right to damn me for my sins if He will have the ability to save me from my sins. That God, this true living God, that it is actually our hope that He is so much greater, so much more powerful, so much higher than we could ever imagine, that it is our hope for salvation, that He is powerful enough and sovereign enough to overcome our very rebellion. That it is actually when we come face to face with this God who who we finally acknowledge, we finally admit that we don't have a right to question him. We don't have a right to try to steal his glory. We don't have the right to try to think that we are the center of the universe. It's only when we come in face-to-face with an undomesticated God that we find a God who can actually save us, a God who's actually powerful enough to fix the mess that we've created of the world. So this morning as we work through Psalm 113, we're going to be talking about God. We're going to be talking about God. And we're going to be looking at three realities about the true living and undomesticated God. uh, Three of them. First, our God deserves to be praised at all times. Our God deserves to be praised at all times. Uh, Psalm 113, verses 1 through 3, say this, Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting. The name of the Lord is to be praised. Uh, Praise is something that you and I understand intuitively, right? It it comes out of us all the time. Just any time we... talk about or sing about or clap about or stand up for something that that we think is good, that that, that we want to honor, right? Praise just kind of, it's something we get, something we understand. Uh, What might not be as intuitive to us is this phrase from this section of verses, blessed be the name of the Lord. We've just been singing that uh, in in a number of our songs, blessed be the name of the Lord. What what is that talking about? You know, I I think we typically think of blessing as something that comes from God to us. Right, but this psalm is saying that that blessing ought to go from us to God. So what does it mean? Well, to bless God means to set Him apart with highest admiration in our hearts. To take His name, to take the name of God, and to put it at the top of our priority list. To see His name as our highest value. To see God's name as separate in a different category from anything else and anyone else in our lives. That's what it means to bless to bless his name, to hold him with highest admiration. Um well, we all have certain brands that we kind of cling to. Uh, certain name brands that we that we that we gravitate towards. Why do we do that? Well, uh, we come to trust something because of, of because of its qualities, right? I, I don't know what it is for you. Maybe there's like a certain kind of car that you always that you always go for or there's some clothes that you that, that you just love or some shoes that you've come to really appreciate, right? We all have brands, names that we come to trust. Why? They have these qualities. Maybe it's reliability. Maybe it's durability. Maybe it's valuable. Maybe it's something that's beautiful. But because of the qualities in it, we we come to trust it. We come to become loyal to it. We we hold it in admiration, and, and we're willing to show that admiration by what we're willing to pay for it. But every once in a while, there might be a brand or a name that we've loved for years that all of a sudden loses our respect. That falls out of our admiration or or maybe there's a team that we've pulled for and and for whatever reason we we stop pulling for them why is that well whatever it was whatever those values were whatever those qualities were that were in that name that we love they they're no longer there they've changed and because they've changed they have lost our respect Uh, here at the beginning of psalm 113 what we're being called to do is to set god's name as highest as best as most important but here's the deal God's name can't be diminished. God's name, God can never do anything that would lose our respect. There's nothing that God could ever do that would make the admiration that we ought to have for Him shrink in our lives. God is is full of all the infinite goodness of whatever we think is good to the fullest capacity forever. He can never be diminished. And here's the key. Uh, here, here, here's the key from this psalm. When we bless God's name, when we bless His name, we set our respect, our loyalty, our admiration for Him outside of our circumstances. The way we feel about God, the way we think about God, the praise that we give to God, we set His name apart and it's outside of of our circumstantial experience. This is what what it means in verses 2 and 3. Let me read verses 2 and 3. Blessed be the name of the Lord, when? From this time forth and forevermore. That's a long time. And then it adds, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. So this psalm is saying, hey, every single day, if it's today, then today is a day to praise. And then he says, but what about, you know, the different minutes of the day, right? Aren't there highs and lows in the day? He says, from the rising of the sun to its setting. God's name is to be blessed. His name is set outside of our circumstances. Uh, I'm sure we've all seen um, you know, one of these reality shows or a game TV show or something where maybe, maybe you've, you've seen where there's a guy standing up at the front and he's got these cards. And at certain times in, in the show, he, you know, he holds up a card and it says, laugh now. Or, or at another, another time he holds it up and says, clap now. You know, what, what's that all about? Don't we know when to laugh or know when to clap? Well, the idea is they're, they're trying to create a scenario or a situation that draws out a certain response. And so if something's funny, they, they, they hold up the sign and say, hey, they want you to laugh. They want you to know that, hey, this is the time when you're supposed to laugh. Or, or something good happens or exciting happens or it's the beginning or the end of the, the show or something. They want you to clap because they, you know, they want some excitement. Well, it's almost like the beginning of Psalm 113 here. There's someone who, who, who comes up and meets us and, and they hold up this sign. And the sign says, praise now. But here's the difference between this sign and, and you know, the other ones we've seen. This is a sign that never comes down. Praise now is the sign that is written over every single circumstance. It's written over every single day and is written over every day from the rising of the sun to its setting. Praise now. As we're going to see in a minute, what that doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that it always has to be happy praise. We can bless God's name in our sadness. We can worship God even in our brokenness. But the key is this, the true God, the one true living, undomesticated God. He is not changed by our circumstances. But in every circumstance, the reality of who God is changes everything. Uh, there's a guy in the, in the Bible who's is sort of the, the most famous uh, person uh, when it comes to seeing what it looks like to praise God through every circumstance. Right? This is a story that's just it's timeless. It's, it's for, forever since it was written. It's, it's been uh, the most, one of the most powerful stories about what it looks like to continue to bless God's name uh, even when it seems like life is falling apart. Uh, and this story is about a man named Job. At the beginning of the book of Job, we hear some successive announcements in chapter 1. It's like one bad thing after the next happens to him. Job, he loses all of his oxen. He loses all of his sheep. He loses all of his camels. And all the servants who are, who are guarding those animals, they're all killed. Like it all happens one thing after the next. But then it, it's this, this, this final blow in chapter 1 that is, that is the absolute worst. It's like dominoes hitting one after the next. And this this final domino, at least in chapter 1, it actually gets worse for Job, but at least in chapter 1, this final domino lands in Job chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, where it says, While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead." And I alone have escaped to tell you. Can you imagine this as a, as a parent? Not just a child, but all of them at once. This is the worst day you can imagine. I almost feel like if I took all of my bad days together and, and, and kind of put them into one, I'm not sure that it would be this bad. But listen to what happens next. It says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And this is what he said. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is Psalm one thirteen. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When? When it's good. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When? When? When it feels like God is blessing me. Now, blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. How is it? How is it that Job could be drawn to worship God? on his worst day ever. What kind of God must this be that he still blesses this God when all of the blessings in his life in one moment are ripped out? It's because Job did not have a domesticated God. Job knew that his God was worthy of praise all the time. Job knew that there was nothing that could diminish his God's name, his God's worth, There's nothing that could take away from the glory of what this God deserved. Job saw that this God was a God who kills and a God who gives life. This this was a God who gives and a God who takes away. And so even on his worst day, Job, yes, he rips his clothes. Yes, he's in the dust. But he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. So... From the outset this morning, let's just ask ourselves, have we set God's name outside of our circumstantial experiences? Have we come to the place where the praise that we believe this God is worth has nothing to do with what happens in our lives? That we see that this God, whoever He is, is worthy of our worship, irregardless Of our circumstances, as we work through the rest of the psalm, what we're going to see is why it is that God is worthy. Why is it that Job could worship God in this instance? Why could he still say, "Blessed be the name of the Lord"? And so, second this morning, second, our God is transcendent. Our God is transcendent. Let's read verses four through six. It says. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Uh, God's transcendence is the reality that He is in a different category from everything else. So here's God over here, and if we could say God is in the, the bucket or the category of Creator... And then everything else that has ever existed, both visible and visible, that's grass and that's time. That's penguins and it is demons. Everything that has ever existed that isn't God is in the bucket of creation. God is categorically different than everything else and anyone else that has ever been visible or invisible. And that's God's transcendence. Uh, think about God's transcendence like this. Um, we, we think about people who transcend, uh, who, who, who tend to break the ceiling on certain categories. So maybe it's the athlete that, you know, for years, for hundreds of years, uh, th- this has been the standard. This has been the highest play- place that someone could go. But then an athlete comes along and they just bust through and they set all the records. We, we say that that athlete transcends the rest. They're outside of the categories of all the other, the other ones. You know, or think about, I don't know, an artist or you know, think about someone who's an inventor who creates something, you know, like the iPhone, for example. I mean, who, who could have ever dreamed that we would all be walking around with computers in our pocket? I mean, it just here's the ceiling, here's what we think is possible, and just it just transcends even what we could have imagined. But here's the difference between God's transcendence and the transcendence of man. When we evaluate the transcendence of man, it's always a matter of degree right? It's always, you know, she was smart, but she was smarter. Or, or he did something great, but, but, but he did something greater. But when it comes to God, it's, it's not a matter of degree. It is a different category altogether. If I can kind of humbly put it this way, everything else in all of creation is apples and God is an orange. There's this dividing wall between who God is and between everything else. And this is his transcendence. Now, this psalm is trying to call us to praise this God by describing His transcendence. And I want to highlight four ways that this psalm calls us to praise the transcendent God. First, we're we're called to praise God for His sovereignty when verse 4 says, The Lord is high above all nations. When we're talking about God's sovereignty, what what we mean by that is that God does as He pleases and that God accomplishes His will in the world. That's what His sovereignty means. Uh, Notice, for example, this this psalm does not say that God is high above our nation. It doesn't say that God is high above most nations. It says that God is high above what? All nations. He is sovereignly seated on the throne in all places at all times. Charles Spurgeon uh, once preached uh, this in a sermon on God's sovereignty. He said, there's no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. What's he saying? He's saying that Christians belief that God is over all things, that God is in control of all things, that, that God accomplishes His will in the world, it ought to be the greatest comfort to us. That, that the only reason we can believe that God does work all things for good for those who love Him is because He is sovereign over all things, that we can trust that the, the adversities in our life aren't actually going to get the upper hand on us is because God is seated on His throne over everything That happens. But Spurgeon continued in his sermon. He said, On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth of which they have made such a football as the great, stupendous, but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on His throne. They will allow Him to be in His workshop to fashion the worlds and make stars. They will allow him to be in his almonry, to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof, or or light the lamps of heaven, or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures then gnash their teeth. For God on his throne is not the God they love. But it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon his throne whom we trust." To domesticate God is to attempt to strip him of his sovereignty. No, 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 no. The reason that there is a praise now sign written over every circumstance is because the Bible is abundantly clear that God is sovereign over that circumstance. Second, we're called to praise God for his holiness. When verse 4 continues, and saying, and his glory, his glory above the heavens. The glory of God, you ever wonder, what is the glory of God? What do we mean by that? The glory of God is the outshining or the manifestation of His holiness. The glory of God is the weight, the weight of His holiness. What does that mean? Well, it means that everything about who God is is distinguished and separate and in a different category, similar to transcendence, than anything that has ever existed. Uh, this, <clears throat> this past uh, Thursday was our anniversary, and I was reminded this week of um, when I went and bought Allie her engagement ring. And uh, you know, if you've, if you've ever been, been a part of this thing, you, you know that when you go and you buy a diamond, you have to get a little educated. And uh, you learn about the four C's. Um, you know, Somebody's gonna get a pop quiz on the way home uh, about, the, about the four C's. Um, there are these categories that you look at a diamond and you're trying to distinguish, you know, how valuable is it? How, how pure is it? How uh, wonderful is it? How big is it? And you're assessing, you know, is this worth all this money? Is this worth my wife? You know, is this worth the, the moment? Um, I uh, looked it up this week. Apparently, the most valuable diamond in the world is the Koh-i-Noor diamond. Uh, it's translated the mountain of light. You know, if a diamond's called the mountain of light, you know that thing's going to be a big honker. Uh, It's known as the largest cut diamond in the world. Listen to this. Weighing a ridiculous 105.6 carats. Now, I mean, that doesn't mean anything to me, but it means something to some of you, right? 105.6 carats. I mean, imagine wearing that thing around, you know. You're just, you know, like this all day, you know. Um, Now, listen, I, I love my wife's ring. I think she loves her ring. But if you were to put the diamond on her ring up next to the mountain of light, her ring would look like a little piece of grain of sand from the beach. Right? There's just something about the mountain of light that is distinguished. It is glorious. It outshines the rest. Why? Because it has all the categories of wonder that you want in something that precious, something that valuable. It is clearly distinguished from all the rest. And this psalm is saying, God is so glorious, He's so holy, that His glory is above the heavens. His glory outshines anything we can imagine. If there is a category to assess goodness, God is perfect in that category and he is infinitely perfect in that category. Just think of whatever you think is good, God has it and he has it in infinite proportion. We attempt to domesticate God when we strip him of his holiness. What does this look like in our lives? Well, we strip God of his holiness when we don't reverence him when we don't give him the awe that he deserves when there's something else in our life that has more weight what do i mean by that i mean more weight in our value system more weight on our priority list something else gets more weight in our life than god if i can sort of put it on a i don't know maybe like a crass level what i mean i mean we 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 essentially rob god of his holiness when we treat him as our support animal rather than as our Lord, as our King, as our Master, as our God. This God is holy. He is set apart. Third, we're called to praise God for His incomparability. When uh, verse 5 asks, this is a rhetorical question, but we sort of know the answer. Who is like the Lord our God? In other words, there's not even anything to compare him to. Right? So much of how we understand things in life is comparison. Oh, that's kind of like that, or that's kind of like that. or What's like God? Who's like God? You say, nothing. No one. See, God is incomparable because he is the only thing in all the universe that is self- Sufficient. You and me, we depend on things and on God for every breath, at every moment. Everything else in the the universe is contingent. But there's one who's self existent. And why is he self existent? Our God is self existent because he is triune. We worship the one God who has eternally subsisted as three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and yet one God. Three persons, one essence, one being, one nature. Author Jared Wilson explains why we worship a triune God in his book Unparalleled. He says this, he says, The God most people want, even in their claims of tolerance and open-mindedness, turns out to be very narrow-minded indeed. He is simply a projection of themselves. The kind of God we want to worship is the kind who's pretty much exactly like us, the kind who shares our thinking, our preferences, and our tastes. The truth is, once we get a greater perspective, the Christian view of a triune God is not only logical, it is incredibly necessary. The doctrine of the Trinity, in fact, explains the deepest longings of the human heart. That's a big, bold claim to make. He's saying if you want to actually understand how it is that we are the way we are, you actually have to first understand that God is a trinity. He goes on to explain himself. He says when Christians teach that God is himself love, they are saying that real love has itself its origin and its essence in God. And this cannot be true unless God is a trinity. Think about it. A solitary God cannot be love he may learn to love, he may yearn for love, but he cannot in himself be love because love requires an object. Real love requires relationship. And from eternity past, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit have been in community, in relationship. They have loved each other. So the Trinity is not some weird religious aberration Christians have stupidly clung to. It is the answer to the deepest longing of the human heart. What is he saying? He's saying, look around. Think about yourself. Think about how necessary relationships are to us. Think about how weird we get when we get dislocated from people in our lives, when we get isolated from people in our lives. Think about how difficult life is when there's not love pouring in and love being poured out. And he's saying that the reason that we are the way we are is because the God who made us is an eternal three in one. That when we say that God is love, we mean from eternity a Father, Son, and a Spirit have been in love with one another forever. And we attempt to domesticate God when we try to neglect the fact that He is triune. As, shouldn't it actually be a little bit comforting that the God who is actually there is beyond our comprehension? Shouldn't we actually find hope and courage in the fact that we have a hard time understanding how it is that God could be how He is? Isn't that a good thing? that the stretches of our imagination are brought to their brink at the reality of the undomesticated living God. Is this hard to understand? I don't know, maybe, but I think that's a good thing. The triunity of God, more than anything else, screams of His incomparability. Who is like our God? Nothing, no one. And then this psalm continues to call us to praise our God. Uh, Fourth, uh, we're going to see here... um, for his impassibility, when verse six says, who? Talking about God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. So, what is God's impassibility? That might be a new word uh, for some of us. Um love to talk to you about it more later if you're interested, but it means that God isn't able to be acted upon from the outside. God isn't able to be acted upon from the outside. The reason that God deserves to be praised at all times. The reason that there is a praise now sign over all of life is because God is exactly as He has been and exactly as He will be forever at all times. We can't affect God. We can't move God. We can't push Him out of the way. We can't get to Him. He is immovable. He is unshakable. He cannot be acted upon. God has no potential. Everything else in the world, you and I, we have potential, we can grow, we can get better, we can get stronger, we can get weaker, we can get higher, we can get lower. God can't go anywhere that he's not. He's everywhere. He can't learn anything that he doesn't know already because he knows all things. He can't become tomorrow what he wasn't yesterday because he's already what he would be if he could become something. He has no potential. Here's a funny way to envision God's impassibility. I want you to imagine that a NBA basketball player out of the kindness of his heart went and showed up. Uh, over here at Soxty Elementary School, and he, and he played a pickup basketball game with one of the third graders at Soxty Elementary School. Now, let's be honest. If he was a jerk, uh, we know that he could block every single shot uh, with one little you know, b- you know, boop of the hip like that. The kid would just go falling out on the ground. Uh, he, he could allow this, this, this child to grab his legs and jump on and, and hold on to him. He would even allow the kid to punch him. You know, he, he's still going to win. He's immovable. He, he's, he is beyond being acted upon from the outside. And that's a, just sort of a funny picture of who God is. He is immovable. He, we can't affect him. We can't get to him. We can't knock him out of the way. And this psalm is trying to call us to praise this God. It's calling us to, to bless this God. Why? Because he's transcendent. Our God is not going to fall off his throne. Our God's promises that he's made to us aren't going to somehow change. He's not going to somehow not be able to follow through on something that he has told us that he will do. Why? Because he's unstoppable. And we need this transcendent God because only a transcendent God can save us. Only a transcendent God could actually reach down into our mess and meet us in our neediness. And that leads finally this morning to our our third and final thing. In verses seven and nine, we're going to see this that our God chooses to come close. Our God chooses to come close. Verses 7 to 9 say, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of His people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. It is true that God is transcended. It is true that we could never get to Him. It is true that we can never reach up and bring God down to our level. But it is also true that out of His mercy and out of His grace, God has chosen to come down to our level. That this all-sovereign one uses His sovereignty to raise the poor up from the dust. That this all-sufficient one who needs absolutely nothing reaches down into the lives of desperate and needy people and raises them up to be princes in his kingdom. That this God, who is himself very life of very life, has no problem reaching into the womb of a a barren woman or we might even say reaches into the womb of a virgin and brings forth a child. These two truths of God's transcendence and God's willingness To come close are right at the heart of Christianity. This is what makes Christianity what it is. This is why this church exists. What do I mean by that? Well, this great, big, transcendent, unimaginable, incomparable God, He has come close in His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son. who has has never been inside of time, who himself created time, and yet for us and for our salvation, he took on humanity and he stepped into time. This is the good news of Christianity, that the great transcendent God has come so close that he has become one of us. This Jesus, who is God himself, he became man. He lived a perfect life. He actually, for the first time in all of history, he became an obedient person. It says in Hebrews that he learned obedience. Not only did he learn obedience, but he sweat like we sweat. He was slapped, he was spit on, he bled, and he eventually died. What was he doing when he died? Well, not only did he die, but he died taking our sins upon himself. Could you get any closer to someone than to take their sins upon yourself? Could you go any lower than to take the punishment for someone else's sins upon yourself? This is the wonder of Christianity. This is the joy we proclaim. This is the good news we have, that there is a great, big, mighty, transcendent God who cannot be moved, who is unshakable, who is our rock, and this great, big, immovable, mighty God. He became one of us to save us. In mercy, He came as close as you can get to rescue sinners. So this morning, I don't know, maybe as you've been listening, uh, you've been somewhat convicted. I know I certainly don't praise God 24-7 the way He deserves. Um, I'm not always like Job. That that sign that says, praise now. Uh, There's been plenty of times in the past week that I've gone over and just ripped that sign in half. And I've put up a different sign that says, complain now. Or a sign that says, I'm in charge right now. Or a sign that says, self-pity now. Or a sign that says, numb myself with distraction now. But this morning, maybe, maybe as you've been listening, if you were really honest with yourself, you would you would be remiss to say that there's, there's actually never been a time in your life where you actually turned to praise this God. You know, maybe you've believed in God. Maybe there's a God for you that created the world or, or a God who might help you in, in your difficult circumstances. But it, but if you're really honest in your heart, you know you've, you've never blessed this God. You've never seen His wonder and beauty and just wanted to exalt Him and praise Him and lift Him up. It's just, you have never really wanted to see Him as the Lord of your life and the the wonder of your life, the glory of your life. He's there, He exists, but your heart's never loved Him. Well, this morning, I hope what you'll see is that this, this God, He deserves your praise. And He has every right to judge you for neglecting Him. But would this melt your heart? Would this melt your heart to love Him? That though He is high, though He is exalted, though He has every right to judge, He came to rescue you. He came to rescue me. He came to get so close to us that He would take our sins upon Himself. Would that melt your heart? Would you look to Jesus Christ this morning? As Matthew Barrett said at the beginning, only only the Creator not to be confused with the creature, is capable, is capable of stooping down to redeem those who have marred his image. And he has come. So this morning, if you've never turned, I I pray you will. And and in that moment, when when we actually turn to Jesus and we trust him, we trust him to save us from our sins, that is actually the first act of worship that any person ever can do. That we look at Jesus and we say, Jesus, you're perfect and I'm not. Jesus, you're righteous and I'm not. You obeyed and I didn't. And I'm trusting you. That is the first way that we honor him. That is the first way that we praise him. That is the first way that we bless his name is when we say, Jesus, I need you. This morning, would you worship your God by first and foremost trusting in the Savior? Uh, The the reason the psalm ends the way it does is because uh, apparently whoever composed the psalm was apparently meditating on 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2. Uh, we know that because Psalm 113, which was written later, directly quotes uh, 1 Samuel. So we know wh- whoever's working on this, they're, they're, they're meditating on this. And then, and then when you go back and you read 1 Samuel 1, uh, chapter 1 and 2, you realize it's, it's got to be. Um, what we see in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2 is uh, we're introduced to a, man, uh, a woman named Hannah. And Hannah is barren. She has no children, and it is just crushing her. It's all she can think about. It is turning her life upside down. And, and year after year, she goes to God's temple, and she prays to God. But in 1 Samuel chapter 1, she finally gives it to the Lord. In an act of desperate prayer, she, she lays her request down at the feet of God. And in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we learn that God heard her. He heard her and she, he remembered her and she gave birth to a son. And in response to what God had done in her life, Hannah bursts into praise. And as I read this, I'm going to read her praise and I just want you to hear how she believes in this God who is neither domesticated He's not a God who can be brought low. He's not a God who can be tamed. He's not a God who can be put into a box. And yet she also believes in the God who is gracious and merciful and loving and willing to choose to come down, to get involved in her life. This is 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 2-8. through 8. Hannah praises God. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Listen to this. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He, he brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy one from the ash heap to make them sit with, the prince, with princes and inherit, and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. This is not a domesticated God. This is a woman who knows that there is a God and He is both high, holy, lifted up, and yet He uses His sovereignty. He uses His power. He uses His strength to come down and get involved in the lives of needy people like us. That because of His heart of compassion, He comes close. And we know that He would come so close that He would be willing to become one of us. Who is like the Lord? Who is like our God? You know, if you were to ask me uh, what the mission of our church is, what the mission of our church is, it is to make disciples who make disciples, right? But if you were to ask, what is the purpose of this church? What is the goal of this church? Why does this church live and breathe and even have a pulse? It is to worship the living God. Our goal, our purpose is to praise God. But the problem is, so many times our conception of God is so small, is so domesticated, is so false, that our hearts get captured by other things. Our dreams, our desires, they're, they're focused on other things. And so I would, I would believe that we're all probably in one of two places here this morning. Either on, on the one hand, we've believed in this domesticated God, we believe in the God that we can control, the, the God that we can tame, the God who exists to make us happy. We don't have a God who can tell us what to do. We don't have a God who can impose His will upon us. We don't have a God who deserves and demands our reverence, our awe, and our worship. But what we've seen this morning is that it is our only hope that we have a transcendent God. It is only a God who is great, who is mighty, who is sovereign, who can help the needy. But maybe you're at another place this morning. Maybe your God is a distant God. You think, God could never love me. God could never get involved in my life. God could never show up for me. Well, I hope what you've seen from his word this morning is that God chose out of his mercy, out of his grace, to come so close, so close that he would take our sins upon himself. And that means he's right here. That means he's available. That means he's open to us. And that means that he deserves our praise From this day forth, forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting. The sign over our lives and over this church, may it forever be, praise now. Let's worship. God, we thank you, we love you, we exalt you. How many times have we belittled you? How many times have we not felt the weight of what you're worth? (laughs) How many times, on the one hand, have we tried to bring you down to our level and think that you should work on our timeline, and yet at the same time, God, how many times have we doubted your mercy, doubted your grace, doubted your compassion? How many times have we believed that you were too far from us to actually have a relationship with you? And so, again, we ask that you would retune our hearts, recalibrate us to, to who you are, the real God, the true God, the living God. We want to know the God who is there We want to know the God who's revealed to us in the scriptures. God, we want to know the God who's both so much higher than we could imagine and yet the God who's so loving, so gracious, that he's come right here into our world to be with us, to be the God who's with us. Lord, would you lead us to lives where we bless your name, no matter what, no matter the circumstances, that your name would be blessed forever.